you know, you hear me say to you all the time, you ought to be a student of the Bible and, you know, not just, and how would you go about that? Just uh, if you wanted to have some books that might help. And here's one that I used to write this sermon this week. Uh, it's called the HarperCollins Bible Commentary. It's excellent and it is accessible to anybody. There's a companion volume called the HarperCollins Bible Dictionary. And if you get these two, you're loaded for bear. So it would, be, it would help, and the dictionary will tell you all about the languages and all the chronology and everything, and this does as well. And this is produced, or the people who contributed to it are from the Society of Biblical Literature, a lot of them, so it's a very substantial organization. They're very respectable and not fundamentalist, so uh, that's a good thing. I uh, realized reading the readings this week that I simply could not escape preaching on the good wife. <laughs> so I'm going to do that. It's the conclusion of the uh, book of Proverbs. So I want to do some kind of what they call exegesis of the passage, which means to talk about some of the, of the interpretive issues here and see how we might think about it and uh, maybe say something to you briefly about, in my own lifetime, what I perceive as the sea change in the, uh, ch of in the relationship between men and women in this country. I think it's, there's been a substantial change, but you know what I've learned? It's like technology. Each one of us is in a different spot on the learning curve simultaneously. So that would mean early on somebody would say, Oh, I didn't know you could press Control-L and you, you, that would do that. And uh, yet at the same time, the person who taught you the Control-L doesn't even know how to use the menus up top. So, so you, can't, you can't figure out, uh, you know, how come some people know some things that appear to be very advanced and other people who don't know some of the fundamental things at the same time. And I suspect that's true about the great social issues that are in front of us as a people and always has been. So you have people who are feminists and at the same time wearing four-inch heels. So it's hard to figure, isn't it? So, it, so it, and, and, and those are things that are, that are um, part of what I'm going to say, I think. So we'll see about that. And then I'm going to talk about James. I love it when we read the epistle of James uh, for this reason. And I got this from the commentary. Uh, and he, uh, Luke Timothy Johnson wrote the commentary on James in there. He's a well-known biblical scholar. And he said, you know, the epistle of James is not novel or uh, um, unusual. It is actually quite ordinary. But the reason it's in the New Testament canon is because the writer is so passionately concerned about the importance of practical wisdom and about how you and I develop our ethical sensibilities as we live and respond to the challenges and the opportunities in front of us. So in some ways, uh, it's, it's, uh, it shows you that out of a fairly commonplace thing, what's being said, in other words, has been said in other places, and maybe even in a little more eloquent way, but there's just something about the tone and the urgency and the the commitment and the sense of conversion that the writer has about what he's saying there that makes it compelling. So today, James talks about wisdom from above and earthly wisdom. 
And I wanted to preach about it because for the last several weeks I've been speaking about practical wisdom, which would appear to be earthly because it's experiential and you and I develop it as our accumulated response to um, adversity, which is a sort of horizontal occurrence, isn't it? It isn't, doesn't appear to be specifically religious when we talk about it. So, Proverbs. I mentioned uh, over the last few weeks, we're going to be reading the wisdom literature for a while. I see this next week, Esther. We'll read from Esther. You hardly ever hear from Esther. Did you know that uh, when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered at Qumran, they discovered manuscripts of every Old Testament book there, except the book of Esther. The book of Esther was not at Qumran. Who cares? Well, it's important because what one of the things Qumran taught was not some secret thing about they found the body or as the New Yorker cartoon ha had that we had on our refrigerator for so long, a woman comes into the living room with a tray, with a plate and says, who would have thought that such a delicious recipe for brownies was in the Dead Sea Scrolls? <laughs> <laughs> So when all this came out, everybody thought, oh, you know. But what it does show is during the, the time of the event, uh, the, the, that community, how important was the book of Esther? I guess not very. But Isaiah was really important because there were a lot of copies. The, 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 this minor prophet Habakkuk was huge at Qumran. So it tells you something about things like that. In any case... The wisdom literature is this. I read it to you last week. Wisdom literature is the genre of literature common in the ancient Near East. It is characterized by sayings of wisdom intended to teach about divinity and about virtue. The key principle of wisdom literature is that whilst techniques of traditional storytelling are used, books also presume to offer insight and wisdom about the nature of reality. So the wisdom literature in the Old Testament sometimes does not appear to be specifically religious, but it does have enormous religious and spiritual significance. Another piece of wisdom literature uh, is Ecclesiastes. So to everything there's a season, you know? Remember the song a long time ago now? So that's from Ecclesiastes, and it appears that uh, uh, it loomed large in the ancient Near East, and they included it in the Hebrew Bible. So here's what you have today. The conclusion of Proverbs is this long poem about, that, that has usually been uh, uh, described or titled uh, the, uh, uh, the Good Wife. So here's some inside baseball for you on this, 39.95. This poem is an acrostic, which means that each line begins with a succeeding letter of the Hebrew alphabet. There are more than one, there's more than one acrostic in the, in the Old Testament. Psalm 119 uh, is an acrostic, so it starts with each. Uh, and in Psalm 119, which is the longest psalm in the Psalter, if you go to our prayer book, you will see that in this uh, prayer book, we have actually the heading of the Hebrew character for that section. So every sentence, every line of the psalm begins with that. So it's an acrostic, so it gives it a kind of a, you know, so it's sort of a 
a uh, written description of perfection in the view of the writer, right? You know, an acrostic and sort of very uh, orderly in, in that fashion. Proverbs is at pains to talk about something that could be translated from the Hebrew woman wisdom, because wisdom is a female, uh, is, is, is feminine in Hebrew and also in Greek. Somebody asked last week, what's the Greek word for wisdom? Sophia. So when you hear the name, uh, it's wisdom is what it means. It's feminine. So woman wisdom's walking around the world, right? Just um, talking to people about wisdom and adhering to wisdom and what the consequences are not of not doing that and what fools do and what wise people do. So there are a variety of forms of woman wisdom in the book of Proverbs. And this concludes, as one biblical commentator said, it rounds out wisdom literature's stock of female characters. Uh, in the original language, the title of this poem could be translated, The Strong Woman, or The Capable Wife. I was thinking, have any of you read the novels of Barbara Pym? Have you heard of her? Barbara Pym talks in her novels about excellent women in the old model of excellent women. They're all people in England who help out at the vicar at the parish and put on all the dues, right? And they're called the excellent women who do it like with one hand tied behind their back. So the model that we have here of the, excel, of, of, of the capable wife uh, is somebody who is, whose capabilities are described, again, as another commentator said, uh, defined wholly from a male-identified point of view. That is the perspective of her fulfillment of roles that enable the lives of the men who depend on her. So that means they can go down to the gate Right, it says in this fact. They get to go down to the gate and they're there with each other schmoozing around and attending to great affairs. I think it would have been more like my grandfather said, you get to go be one of the boys in the back room. <laughs> because you got it all handled for you in one form or another. One of the commentators in this Harper commentary, Carol Fontaine, the professor of Hebrew at Andover Newton, Theological School, Newton, Massachusetts, uh, says this. You know, at the beginning of the wisdom literature and in other parts of the Old Testament, the finding of, of a capable woman or a strong woman looks to be an impossible task to a male writer. This is a long search, my friends. You may not be successful, right? And she said, uh, here, nevertheless, the picture here acts as a corrective to the notion that women are dangerous beings who sap away men's lives and fortunes and may have been included precisely to counter such one-sided negative views seen earlier with a positive last word on the subject from the book of Proverbs. That it's not like that, really. There are plenty of capable women. Now, the reason I'm, I'm speaking about this is that I mentioned to you 
thinking about my own uh, lifetime uh, and in, in what I do, uh, being a member of the clergy uh, and trying to keep up, you know, reading the theology, reading the, uh, the, the New Testament stuff and everything. And what, what I've seen happen are two things, more than two, but two for the purposes of this sermon. And that is that there are some, some feminist biblical scholars or theologians who believe that the biblical text is simply useless. It is of absolutely no value at all because of the way in which uh, it characterizes women. Therefore, we have to seek other sources, and that's why you have a whole lot of these obscure uh, texts that have now bubbled up that everybody has known about since God was a boy, but they're acting as though they've just found them, right? And believe that we have to search that to get some insight. Or like Carol Fontaine elsewhere, you discover uh, that uh, this is what may be the case. And what this is, is that maybe the biblical text is a affirmation of the pilgrimage aspect of the spiritual journey of human beings and the beginning to see that in the biblical witness for, for uh, Judeo-Christian people that what we see is God's consistent work in the hearts and minds of people to bring their thinking and relating into congruence, greater congruence with God's purposes for the cosmos. And so you see in a writing like this a softening and a change in the conventional wisdom of the people that surrounded in the ancient Near East these writers and believed in a more uh, exclusionary view of women's roles. So while it was by no means uh, a Im complete improvement, it was substantially different than the uh, situation prior. And it began to work on people's hearts and minds. I'll, I'll give you another example that I've talked about before. You know, in the story of Abraham and Isaac, we have archaeological evidence to support the view that the, the killing of little boys that were eight or nine years old, that were the firstborn children of families in human sacrifice, stopped around the time that we would date Abraham if he were an historical person, that these practices ceased. And you can tell from the, the archaeological digging that it stopped. Well, why? Because perhaps the great leaders of these communities began to have an effect on people's manners, morals, and customs. And so things like this have shifted the way in which people begin to think about it. The other view that we have to watch and has become now, I'm sorry to tell you, in some parts of the Anglican Communion, bubbling up again, and that is because movement is seen in terms of the, of the new challenges and opportunities that, that are involved between the way men and women get along together, that we now need to shut that baby down. And we need to return to biblical principles about how men and women relate to one another. And we need to return to a view where women are submissive to men and that this is uh, the, the only way we'll move towards health and salvation. And you begin to see this in all kinds of subtle ways. Perhaps one of the most influential 
evangel English evangelical organizations uh, in the Church of England is an outfit called Reform. And in the title of their website, in the front thing, they say, we do not believe that women should exercise headship of any kind in the life of the church. Well, as my grandfather would have said, I put two lists together to make a big sound like a raspberry. <laughs> right? But this, this outfit has a lot of influence among people who are uh, not completely nuts. So I'm just telling you this to say that the biblical text may give, us, give up to us some things that can be interpreted in a way uh, that um, are more life-giving than saying we need to go back into some rigid categories that are, were anyway an overlay on the biblical text in the first place. So always keep that in mind when you read these, these passages. The reading from James talks about something called earthly wisdom in this passage um, and uh, the difference between that and heavenly wisdom. And what James really means here when he speaks about earthly wisdom is not the stuff that I've been talking about, which is what we learn, practical wisdom about how to live, um, sometimes the practical wisdom about how to live comes out of your, your emotional and spiritual centeredness. The few times in the day when you might actually be focused and, attending and, and attentive. And some of the things that you learn by that process that you're able then to do and to practice in relationship. And that's real wisdom. And you can commend that to other people. And you can use it to benefit your own uh, spiritual maturity. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the conventional wisdom of whatever culture we're in that insists on the priority of the autonomous self. That's, that insists on personal ambition, trumping, self-giving in any way. This is a pretty hard sell in our culture, particularly because all those things are described with more um, affirmative titles, right? The expression of your own entrepreneurial zeal is a positive thing. My grandfather believed that this eco economic system we live in was absolutely the mainspring of human progress. He believed it with all his heart. He taught it to me and my brother. He taught me the virtues of that kind of uh, entrepreneurship. We were small business owners. I'm still very proud of that, you know? But there's a downside to that when it becomes the absolute central focus and defining aspect of who you are to the exclusion of being a decent human being. Thank God he wasn't like that. But, uh, you know, some of his friends were. And so I always thought to myself, maybe when I read this from James, it has something to do with that overweening ambition that is part of the culture in which we find ourselves and can be so destructive. It's so seductive because it appears initially to bear fruit, doesn't it? And we become prosperous and so forth. 
And we ought to be if you work hard. But remember what I said last week. Many of us simply do not give adequate credit to serendipity. And every one of us have been the beneficiaries of positive serendipity in our lives, about which we're completely unaware unless we think carefully about it. And also, uh, accounting sometimes uh, when we wisdom would say, well, you're in this hot water because of what you've done and the way you think and the way you relate. And most of the time, that's true. But sometimes people get into hot water because serendipity was negative and they were not at fault. There's a lot of people who have suffered in the particular environment that we're in now who did not cause their circumstances. Right? So if that's true, then uh, earthly wisdom isn't going to help you. The wisdom from above is going to help you, and what would it do? I, this is another example. I do this from time to time. If you were to wake up one morning, you're driving in the car, or you're in an idle moment, and you're thinking about your life, and you say to yourself, have I made any spiritual progress of any kind? Do I really care whether I make any spiritual progress of any kind? How would I know? Is it just pious sentiment? Well, the biblical witness would tell you in James today, for example, that uh, you might know if you're making progress if you are more able to have pure intentions, if you're more peaceable, if you're gentler, if you're willing to yield, if you are merciful, and if you bear good fruit which is the result of walking the walk and not just talking the talk. And last week I said, if you continue to think about this in heroic terms, that you have to be involved in some earth-shaking social change in order for this to be real, you've missed the boat. Because what it means is in the ordinary and the commonplace, you have been able to bring into relationship to bear these qualities. Elsewhere, aspects of the, the, what I just read to you are called the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, kindness, gentleness, self-control. If you're able to do those things a little, more, a little better than you did yesterday, even if next, the next day you fall back, it demonstrates that this positive energy, the Spirit of God, is at work in you. God coming in an inward way to enlighten and strengthen you. So James is at pains today to say, uh, you need to get away from a culture that is mad on personal ambition and self-aggrandizement and just pure selfishness and move in another direction. So this week, think about all the strong women that you've known in your life and give thanks to God for them, the capable women, the excellent women. Give thanks to God for them. And ask God to help you focus on those aspects of your character that will allow you to have pure intentions, peaceableness, gentleness, willingness to yield, mercifulness, and good fruits. Because James concludes his reading today with draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Amen. Amen. Okay. Thank, I think you, ne you need to do it. Five, let's take four or five minutes, and then you can get a cup of coffee and hear the presentation. Yes, please. I, I like the part in Proverbs.
heard before, which said something about the culture. That if a woman sees a piece of land, she takes her money and Correct. goes and buys it. Mm -hmm. Which told me something about the ability of women to run their own affairs right. and have their own money, which I think we don't necessarily think of for that, for that culture. That certainly doesn't speak about a slave-master kind of relationship between no. husbands and wives. That's right. Thank you. Vic? Did you talk about prior to Abraham, they used to sacrifice children? Was yes. The Hebrews that did this? Or? No, the Canaanites. Canaan, now, who were the Canaanites exactly? Well, there, <laughs> well, there lies a tale. But they're, They were a group of nomadic people. Abraham was a Canaanite. And... Uh, and he practiced Canaanite religion. And in the Canaanite religion, for a period, there was that aspect of their religious practice. So they weren't one of the 12 tribes of Israel? No. No. That's later. All right. Good. Coffee and then the presentation. Eh? So did you get, where did you get the cord? Was it at Radio Shack? Cool. I, you know, I never think to go there. I always go to five. Well, I always feel nervous at fries anyway, because <laughs> I don't know what to do. <laughs>